0: Merry Christmas. Christmas. It is good to be with you. If you're a guest with us today, we are really glad that you're here. We want you to feel welcome, and you can consider yourself a part of our church family. It's good to be back up here. It's been a weird month. In this Advent, we've been looking at the life of John the Baptist. But here we are, we're four weeks in, and we finally hear John speak for the first time. And did you notice how he's introduced? Did you hear his first words? He said to the crowds, you brood of vipers. This is why you don't invite the prophet to the Christmas party. (laughs) They send your family holiday cards that say, Merry Christmas, you little snakes. So it's okay. You can admit that you're already a little turned off by John with that kind of introduction. His words are direct, unapologetic, and they are absolutely 100% the words of the Lord your God. John the Baptist sets the tone for Advent. John the Baptist sets the tone for Advent, and the tone he sets doesn't play nice with modern fragility or our cozy domesticated views of the holiday season. The tone he sets reminds us of why the Advent season is not synonymous with just the birth of Jesus because Advent asks you, do you really know why that baby came? And are you ready for his coming? Are you prepared? And all four Gospels begin the exact same way. They begin with John. That should tell us something, that he has a message that we need to hear. That if you want to be ready, For the coming of the Lord, then the first thing God does is he sends us out into the wilderness to the wild man living in a van down by the Jordan River who greets us with you brood of vipers who warns you to flee the wrath to come. And keep in mind, John is not speaking to ignorant people that have never heard about the Lord. These are not ignorant people. These are people who are not unaware of the things of God, but they'd lost sight of who they were. They'd lost sight of what they were called to be, and they were just drifting further and further away from God. John's message is one of judgment. John's words are heavy. They feel like a slap in the face, but he is not hurling insults. He's giving you a diagnosis. And Luke asks you to withhold judgment on John for a second and to listen closely. Because he says that John actually preached good news. So how can that be? It certainly doesn't sound like it. It's good news for those who want to be healed. It's good news for those who are ready for new life, because John's message is ultimately about joy and having life restored and life to the full. In 2011, I broke my collarbone playing Ultimate Frisbee. Like many men in their early 30s, I realized I wasn't 16 anymore while traveling to the ER as my collarbone was pushing out the top of my shoulder. And they referred me to an orthopedic surgeon, but he was stumped. He looked at the x rays and he'd said, Well, I've never seen an injury like that before. And since collarbones have a way of healing themselves, he said, well, let's, let's give it six weeks to just see what happens. And so Melissa and I left, and we didn't quite feel comfortable with that. We both felt like something was really wrong, and honestly, I was scared. I was scared. I'd never really be able to use my arm again. Throw a ball with my son, the way my dad did with me. So we decided to get a second opinion. And a couple weeks later, we found a surgeon at the Carroll Clinic who specialized in shoulder injuries. He walked in with the x-rays, and I'll never forget it. He was direct. He was direct and to the point and no nonsense. He said, look, your collarbone is never going to heal on its own. You've torn every ligament, that normally pulls the collarbone back into place. And so if you wait six weeks, you will never regain full use of your arm because too much scar tissue will build up. And so the only way for me to fix it is I have to go in and I have to pull the bone out of your shoulder joint, lower your collarbone back into place, reattach it with a screw, and reattach cadaver tendons back in place. I have to go in in surgery, and even though you broke your collarbone, I have to give you a full class six shoulder separation. So you'll be in a sling for six weeks, 24-7. You'll have a year of physical therapy, but I think within 18 months, you'll have full use of your arm again. I have an opening on Friday if that works for you. <laughs> it's quite the gut punch. And Melissa and I could not have had more different responses. She was like, okay. Whoa, let's slow down. That is a lot to process. Can we think about this before we make any decisions? And at the exact same time, I said, Friday works great. (laughs) And the doctor said, yeah, you could wait, but you don't have the time. And his words hit hard, but his words were good news that brought me comfort. Why? because he could see the problem. He could see the problem. I already knew I was a broken mess, literally. But that diagnosis gave me hope and the joy of knowing that I could be healed. God sent John the Baptist to diagnose his people, to help them see what they couldn't see, To wake them up from their spiritual sleep and make them ready for the coming of the Lord. Yes, John's words were offensive to those who didn't feel broken. But for those who knew they were broken, they heard good news. They heard the offer of new life. They heard about joy. As we come to the end of another year, how are you doing Well, Zach, I'm doing good. Okay, great. But that's not what I meant. What I meant was, how are you really doing? Maybe this year has just been awful, and you honestly don't even know how you got through it. Or maybe this has been one of the best years of your career. Or maybe this has just been a year where the waves just keep On, coming, man. One after the other. And underneath it all, no matter what it is, something just feels off for you. You feel spiritually adrift. Like something's wrong and you can't quite see it. You feel stagnant and stuck. Distant from God, and that distance only seems to be growing. Growing. It's okay to be honest that you feel that way. That's why God sent us John. John asked you a question. Would you let me diagnose you? Would you lower your defenses and let me diagnose you? Would you let me help you see what you cannot see? Because I want you to be ready for the coming of the Lord because he is so close. When Luke introduces John, he sets the stage by starting with that long list of political rulers and high priests in power at the time with all those hard-to-pronounce names. This is how prophets were introduced in the Old Testament, of which John is the last. And prophets put everybody on notice from the top down, And ain't nobody safe. Because God sends prophets when things are bad. To speak truth to power. To speak truth to the people. To speak from the desolate place into the populated place. To speak from the outside in. And to call God's people out of something old and into something new. They call them out of death and into life. And John is sent onto the world stage, when Israel is a capital H hot mess. Spiritually bankrupt, lost, wandering, adrift. And Luke introduces John with the words of Isaiah. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. Luke is telling us that John the Baptist is that voice crying out in the wilderness to the people. And the wilderness in the Bible is a special place. It's a very special place. It's a place of spiritual formation and reconnection with God. It's where our our comforts and distractions are removed. It's where God teaches how his people had to orient their lives around him again. It's where he teaches them what it means to depend upon him and learn to trust in his power and provision for each new day It's where his people learn to hear his voice again. That's why John's in the wilderness. But there's also more that Luke is telling us. Because this wilderness language echoes the exodus from Egypt, where God rescued his people and brought them out into the wilderness to teach them what it means to be his people. And so Luke is telling us that this is the beginning of a new exodus. God will rescue his people from the house of slavery once again. And he's calling them to new life. But this is the last train home. This is it. And if you notice the subtle implication then, is that God is calling his people out of Israel, Jerusalem, and the surrounding countryside. Why? Because Israel had become just like Egypt. They weren't a people shaped by the voice of God. They were shaped by so many other things, so many other desires, so many other wants and hopes and cares and concerns and commitments. They couldn't see what they'd become. They were completely unaware of their condition, and they thought that they were safe because they did some religious things that just made them the people of God. So John drops the diagnosis and awakens them to reality. And he tells them what they'd become. He says, You brood of vipers. So, what's he diagnosing? What's he really saying? He's calling them sons of the serpent. He's calling them sons of the serpent. Baby snakes. He's not literally saying they're literally children of Satan. This is an ancient way of saying that they share in the serpent's character. They live and look like members of his family. Because they live and act just like him. They do what he did. This is why, from the beginning, the Bible says that there will be the seed of the woman and there will be the seed of the serpent. There will be those who live and act according to the voice of the Lord, and there will be those who live and act like the serpent. They will decide that they don't really need God all that much. They'll disregard his voice. They'll take matters into their own hands, and they will live life on their own terms. Because what do we see the serpent do from the very beginning? He says, you can't really trust God. He doesn't really want good things for you. If I were you, I would take matters into my own hands and do what seems good to you. He taught Adam and Eve how to live just like him. And as you can imagine, the people would probably hear this and think, What? Root of vipers? Us? We are children of Abraham. Brother, I'm a circumcised Jew. I'm a part of the people of God. God's going to come to judge the nations, not us. We are safe. And John knows that's exactly what they're thinking, which is why he says, and don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Because he knows they had fallen into a lifeless, nominal, cultural faith. They'd say, "Well, I I was I've been circumcised." I celebrate Passover once a year. They settled into a cultural faith, but there was no real commitment to God. And so even though they claimed to be the people of God, they weren't godly people because their life just told a different story. They were shaped by another voice. And John is saying, You claim Abraham as your father, yet you look nothing like him. Abraham left his home, everything behind, and he followed the Lord. Abraham trusted in the promises of God when they were hard, when they felt impossible, and when they felt like a cruel joke. Abraham was willing to sacrifice what was most precious to him just because the Lord asked him to do it. Abraham aligned his life with the will and purposes of God, but you look nothing like him. You look like the serpent committed to living life in your own way, on your own terms, and you disregard the voice of the Lord. You are not ready for his coming. What if we had the same problem? What if we thought we were safe as the people of God? Not ready for the coming of the Lord. What if it's the same diagnosis? It's easy for us to be just like Israel where we fall asleep to who we're called to be. Committed to other things yet we think we're safe because well, I was baptized as a kid. I made a profession of faith. I tend, I've got a church I go to. I'm a good person with good values. And just like them, we can resist that what John says could actually be true of us. And we think, son of the serpent, root of vipers, that's a little harsh. I don't live like that. But John is asking you to consider your life a little bit more deeply. He's asking you to lower your defenses and think about this. When you look at your life, is it shaped more by what God wants or more by what you want? Are you really guided by his voice or are you guided by your own? Because maybe if we take a closer look, our lives tell a different story than what we think it does maybe what John says is a little more true of us than we'd like to think, because sin, after all, is the most perfect virus that's ever existed, because one of its symptoms is convincing you that it doesn't exist, that it's not even there. And John helps us see what we can't see, that maybe our lives tell a different story than we think it really does. Do you decide whether or not to attend worship or how often that should be? Yet, has God not spoken? Do you decide whether or not to give or how much that should be? Has God not spoken? Or thought, I'll decide how to spend my own money? I'll decide when to get around to reading the Bible and prioritizing time in prayer and when all of that is important. I'll decide how I use my time, my energy, my body, my resources. I'll determine what I look at online and what I nurse in my heart. I'll decide who to love and who to reject. I'll determine. When to offer forgiveness, I'll decide who's worthy of my time and affection and who to cut off in my heart. I'll let my past determine whether or not I engage in community. I'll serve when it's the least sacrificial. I'll talk to my kids about the faith if they bring it up. I'll decide when it's time to deal with my addictions if I'm even addicted at all. I'll love my wife when she appreciates me. I'll respect my husband when he straightens up. I'll take what God commands, treat them like guidelines, and decide when it should happen, when it's enough, or whether or not I should even do it. Like the serpent, I'll decide what's best and when I should listen to the voice of the Lord. And when that happens, is it any wonder that we can settle into a lifeless, heartless, commitmentless, cultural Christianity where we think that we're safe because we do a few Christian things, but there is no real commitment to Christ. Why? Because we live as though we don't need him. His voice is not life to you. And you listen to your own. so if any of those things are true for you, John is asking you, friend, friend, does it sound like you're really ready for the Lord? And maybe you look at your life and you admit, no, I guess it doesn't. To that, John would say, that's great. Now let's get you ready? Let's get you prepared for the coming of the Lord because he is so close. And if we listen to him closely, this is where John calls us into the deep end of the faith to a faith that is active and alive, not one that's sleepy and hollow. He says, Look, if you want to be ready and prepare for the coming of the Lord, then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And unfortunately, a common misunderstanding of repentance is that it's just saying, I'm sorry to God. It's just admitting wrong and a recognition that you messed up. But that is not repentance. Repentance is not just recognizing an indiscretion that you've committed. Repentance is setting your life in a whole new direction. It's realizing you've gone your own way. You've been listening to your own voice and turning back unto the Lord and being guided by his. Repentance is not just an apology. It's realigning your life with the will and purposes of God. And this is why repentance bears fruit, because when we stop living according to our own voice and we live according to the voice of the Lord, things change. You will live a whole new life because repentance makes you ready. So the people asked John, well, then what shall we do? What does it mean to repent and bear fruit? And John gives him a really simple answer. He says, do you have two tunics? Then share with someone who has none. Do you have food? Share with those who have none. But then Luke points us to the two types of people that came to him. Public enemies, tax collectors, and soldiers. Soldiers. To the tax collector, John says, only collect what you're authorized. Stop robbing people for your own personal gain. To the soldier, he says, stop using your power to extort your brother and doing shakedowns just to line your own pockets. And maybe that might seem so simple. But it's a picture of the spiritual condition of the people and how lost they were and how much they'd forgotten because John is just telling them the 101 entry-level basics of their faith. Love God, love neighbor. If you want to live for God, then live for others and stop living for yourself. This is why John calls us to repentance and to survey our own life. And to remove those obstacles. He's asking you to survey your life and look for those places and those areas where you just simply live for yourself. Because John teaches us that sin is more than just wrongdoing. It's a roadblock. It's a road roadblock we put between us and the Lord. It's an obstruction that gets in the way of the highway into our heart. And John is asking you, if you want to be ready for the Lord, what have you put in the way of his coming? And I know that one response to all of this is like, "Hey, well, hey, where's the grace? Where's the grace at? Where's the come as you are? And we can treat John like he's just the mean old prophet telling us to go and get straightened up. But then Jesus will come and he'll just forgive everything. But if that's true, then how could John be preparing the way of the Lord? Imagine that you heard someone came to me for pastoral care. And they said they were having marriage problems. And I asked some questions, and I learned that they were having an affair. And I asked them, okay, I said, well, what do you want to do then? Why are you here? And they said, well, I really, really want my marriage to be fixed. I want a strong, vibrant marriage. But I'm not going to give up my mistress. But then I said, That's okay. It's okay. There's grace for you. So, why do you expect John to do the same thing? Why do you expect John to do the same thing? To just come and overlook everything and say, there's grace. He's telling you to lift the valleys and level the mountains in your heart to see that sin in your life as obstacles in your life that get in the way and to get your house in order so that the king of glory may come in. And somewhere along the way, the church has developed this definition of grace that just means Jesus will always and forever forgive you no matter what and never require anything of you. As long as you just blanket believe that Jesus died for your sins, you're otherwise free to live in whatever way seems good to you because you kind of hold that ace of spades. Grace is radical, unbelievable forgiveness. But grace is also being given the time to get your house in order before the master comes. Friends, this is no different than what Jesus taught. Because he's the real prophet. He told parables about being ready, staying awake, keeping your lamps burning, for you know not the day or the hour. And in just a couple of chapters in Luke 7, when Simon the Pharisee asked Jesus to come into his home and dine with him, that... Filthy rabble woman burst through the door and she fell on her face and she kissed his feet. She washed them with her tears. She dried them with their hair and she emptied her bank account to anoint them with oil. that said, Jesus, I do not have much, but what I have is yours. And Simon the Pharisee looked at that woman and reviled her in his heart. And Jesus looked right at Simon, and he said, Simon, when I came to your house, you gave me no water to wash. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no oil for my head. Even though I came to your house, you were not ready for me. You weren't prepared. Thanks for dinner. But I'll be on my way. John's message is one of judgment. The time runs out eventually. But more importantly, John's message is actually about joy. Joy new life kind of joy. He's saying, get your house in order and remove those obstacles and realign your life with the will of the Lord your God because don't you know who's coming to you? And here's the most important part of all of this. The only reason that anything that John says makes any sense is if he's telling you about a God that wants to come close. A God who wants to come into your life and dwell with you. He's telling you about joy. So get ready. When Melissa and I were nine months pregnant with... When Melissa was nine months pregnant... No story of immaculate conception there. When Melissa was nine months pregnant with Asher, our firstborn, I remember getting to that final week. You remember what that was like for you? My firstborn was on the way. We didn't know when the baby would come, but we just had to be ready. We moved that pack-and-play 150 different times. I would set the blanket one way and the stuffed animals one way, and then I'd come back in later, and she had moved it the other way, and then we went back and forth. We had the changing station all set up in the bathroom, diapers stacked and stored. We had the blankets piled up, the stuffed animals propped up just right, the space heater ready to be plugged in, you could do surgery on our floors, they were so clean. (laughs) The baby bag was packed, waiting by the door. It was the most Melissa and I have ever prepared for anything. Why? Because we were ready for new life. We were ready for the joy and the challenges and all the crazy that comes with it. We were ready for our lives to change. But what would it say about us if we did absolutely nothing? And John's ministry cries out, don't you know who wants to come close and dwell with you? Don't you know who's coming? I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Yet he wants to come close to you. So close, in fact, that he will baptize you with his spirit. So that the spirit of God, the life of God, will dwell within you and bring you new life. That's how close. And notice that John doesn't point to Jesus and say, and the one who's coming after me is going to die for your sins, so you don't have to worry about it anymore. No, he points beyond that. He points beyond the cross to Pentecost. Why? Because he wants to point you to the new life that the cross purchased for you. He points forward to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit prepares you for the coming of the Lord. It makes you ready. John's ministry was simply the beginning of what the Spirit of God will complete. It's why the Spirit of God convicts you of sin. And all the ways we live for ourselves, it points to those obstacles in your life that you've put before the Lord. His voice calls you out of the ways of this world like that perfect divine voice in the wilderness calling you out. Calling you out of the ways of this world with all of its hatred and greed and rebellion and jealousy and lusts. It speaks to you through his word. It sits with you in your prayers. The Spirit is the divine housekeeper that helps prepare you so that he can bring Jesus more and more and more and more into your life so that you are reshaped, renewed, restored, and transformed through the joy of divine intimacy with him. Yet how often do we ignore the Spirit's voice and go our own way? So what might all this mean for you? As you enter into this new year, how about you start with this? Jesus wants to come close. Jesus wants to come close. And it's time to reorient your life towards him. So what have you put in the way? What sin Have you ignored in your life and you need to address? Whatever it is that you just thought of is probably the best place to start. And it's time to walk the road of repentance and move in a new direction. And it feels uncertain. It feels unknown and it is. It's because you will learn to walk that road being guided by a new voice. It's time to reconnect with God's Word, because it's just gathered dust for so long. And it's time to hear the Spirit's voice remind you of the husband, and the wife, and the parents and the child, and the friend, and the person that God calls you to be. Or maybe you need to deal with that grudge in your heart that you breathe life into every single day. Or maybe it's time to start praying about your anger. Or maybe you need to stop making excuses. And do something that scares you. Step out in faith and quit living in fear of failure or fear of being hurt. Or do something sacrificial that you never thought you'd do. Start the new year saying, Lord Jesus, I am ready for you. So whatever it might be, I do know this. I know you don't have much time. And why would you go to all that trouble? Well, it only makes sense, and you'd only do that for a God that wants to come close. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that your spirit would make us ready for your coming. And not just your coming on that last day, but each and every day. Knowing that you desire intimacy and closeness with us, your broken people. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be at work. That we would hear your voice above the chaos of this world and the busyness of our lives. We would hear your voice calling us and that you would empower us to follow after it into whatever beautiful unknown that you would lead us. We ask that in this new year that we would end it so much more prepared and ready than when we started. We ask all this by the power of your Spirit and the beautiful work of your grace. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.